From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. I first met Lee Kelly in the fall of 2005. At that time, Lee was a junior officer in the Army National Guard, and I was a newspaper reporter on assignment in Ramadi, Iraq, which was at that time one of the most dangerous places in the world. Lee was also a blogger, and his dispatches from the front were being read by an increasing number of people back home. And as fellow storytellers, we hit it off. We've stayed in contact off and on over the years as Lee began writing regularly about his experiences coming home from war for the New York Times and other publications. And later, as he transitioned out of the military and began a career as a writer and an editor. In the past few years, he's authored or co-authored several books, mostly focused on military themes. And his latest work offers a seemingly counterintuitive proposal. If you're trying to cultivate inner peace, some of the best lessons in the world come from people who have been to war. And Lee writes that while it's true that many veterans have been utterly broken by their experiences in combat, the vast majority have also used the practices they learned in the military to build themselves back up. They have endured, and in doing so, they can teach others how to endure. Lee's latest book is called Look to the Warriors. Lee Kelly, welcome. Thank you, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to start today by observing something that you note in your book. It's it's kind of a paradox of modern life. We live in a world with less war, with more freedom, with more diversity, more access to healthcare, food, and water. And this, in many respects, is the best time ever to be a human being. And yet, so many of us are truly and deeply unhappy. And, you know, before we get to this whole military side of things, what do you think is driving all of this unhappiness? I know. What a, what a wonderful question. It's something I've thought about. I don't know if I have a, <laughs> a good answer. But... Um, sort of my theory is just information overwhelm, you know, overconnectedness with technology. Like, uh, honestly, I think uh, one little example that comes to mind is they recently did this study and they compared like ecotherapy, right? Nature-based, real basic therapy to some different medications and things. And it just, people did so well. And I think that points to maybe the issues, you know, is, that, that's my best theory, is there's so much social media. We're hyper-connected right now. Yeah, big time. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I think either I didn't know about you before, even though we do have a, a fairly long history together now, um, or I had forgotten, uh, but that was we reawakened to me in reading this book, is pre-military, you were kind of, I mean, what they call in the military, kind of a Charlie Foxtrot, right? <laughs> Totally was. I mean, I probably, <laughs> you know, uh, held back in the, right. I probably, I could have, it wasn't appropriate maybe, but in the book, I probably could have gone even deeper, but yeah, I was a wild child. I mean, really, uh, growing up in New Orleans, I'm not saying everyone <laughs> in New Orleans, <laughs> but everyone I knew, I mean, we really, we really, uh, took advantage of that lifestyle. Being a teenager in, in, in the French quarter, uh, is quite an experience. <laughs> Like as an example, I got my license in New Orleans. You get your, you get your license on your 15th birthday, not a permit license. And I was the first one. And my parents of course said, 
first thing they said, do not go across the river to the French Quarter. Okay. <laughs> and wait, you pick wait, up wait. your friends. Yeah. And it's the this first happens thing. when you're 15? For a while, the law was 15. I got that my is hor- my 15th a horrifically bad idea. That's I couldn't agree more. <laughs> but at the time, oh man, I could. So, so yeah. So to your question, pre military, I mean, I was the last, I used to joke, I was the last kid on the block who anyone ever thought was going to join the military. I was not that kid. Uh, yeah. What, why did you join? What was the thing? Yeah, no, I mean, such a fair question. Uh, for me, Matt, it, I made the whole decision in about two weeks. Like it was not on my radar and I, for me, it was a perfect storm of, I think I might have mentioned this in there, but I, I, looking back, I was probably being pretty dramatic, but like broke up with my girlfriend, right? Lost my love, felt all alone. My car broke down, couldn't get to work. So I lost my job, couldn't, couldn't pay my rent. So I got evicted. Oh my God, you were a country parent. music song. Poor baby. I know. Moved back in with my parents. I was so jaded and dejected after three years of being quote unquote independent. I'm like, oh my gosh, I live with my parents. And so I just, I was just jaded and wanted to get out of New Orleans. And it was just that lifestyle and the, the partying, you know. And I had a buddy who had joined and he came back from, from basic training and he was all looking sharp and had, mu- I was inspired by that. And I just, out of nowhere, I go, you know what? I just, it was a way to completely, completely just step out of my whole life, my whole comfort zone. Looking back, it was a pretty brave move, but at the time, I just wanted out. It's just a few years after that, you wind up in Ramadi, Iraq in 2005. Can you describe what Iraq was like in that place during that year? And wow. We'll never forget you guys being there either, but um, it was it was intense. I mean, I want to make it really clear, and you know this, but I was not you know one of the young soldiers going outside the wire every day on combat missions, right? I, I was a staff officer. However, my commander uh, was was a stickler, and he said, even staff, I don't care what your job is, you're going out on a mission at least once a month, you know. So, so I I, I got out there. Um, it was like, it was a trip because I had spent time in active duty for brag, young soldier. I was ready to go anywhere. Didn't get deployed. Then I ended up, you know, going and becoming an officer, doing all this. Still didn't get deployed. Got to Utah, decided to go National Guard. And, and then finally, right, when I have two young kids and married and kind of settled in a little more, boom, here comes the deployment. The heat, the intensity, the explosions, um, it was the kind of place where pretty much every day you probably remember something, you know, something was blowing up. You either heard an IED in the distance. We were that close. You could hear them or mortars came into the base sometimes multiple times a day or rockets came in and they all had a different. And like you said, in the intro <laughs> time magazine is like, yeah, Ramadi is the most dangerous place in the world, purely statistics, right? Because the amount of people getting killed and blown up and, so, uh, yeah, in terms of being a soldier in Ramadi, we didn't put it this way. We didn't know where we were actually going until we finished our six months of pre-combat training. And I'll never forget, we're on the bus heading out. The leave is done. You say goodbye. They probably did this on purpose. <laughs> and we're literally heading out and paper saying, yeah, we're going to Ramadi. And the as that reality started to hit us, we're like, wow. Not going to the green zone, not going to you know a base with movie theaters or anything. We're going to a place that didn't even have running water a couple months ago. 
by this time, you, as you said, you had transferred out of active duty. You're in the Utah National Guard at this point. These are citizen soldiers. These are people who um, during most weeks are teachers or plumbers or police officers or electricians. Um, they get a weekend of training every month and two weeks a year and then a little in the run up for a deployment. But these aren't those kids that you had been earlier in your military career who were like, yeah, I'm in it. I'm, I'm in, I'm in it 24 seven. Not only was it the Utah national guard, but it was like, if I remember correctly, like 27 different States represented, you know, national guards from like 27 different States around the country all got, you know, put together into this brigade combat team. And here we are, <laughs> this huge thousands of people from across the country. Yeah. Like you said, we spent about five, six months training together and that's it. Time to go to time to go to combat. It's very unique. And I don't want to dismiss the myriad traumas that people experience in other life circumstances. I know you don't either. There's no benefit in no, ranking traumas, no, no. but what we can say is that veterans and especially those who've been through a combat experience, they often carry a, a very deep and lasting trauma with them after war. Absolutely. I mean, I'm with you 100%. I would never want to diminish question. I mean, people can get in horrible car crashes and be severely traumatized. I mean, there's so many things, right? But if you just take a step back, and just think about the human experience. I mean, there's not that many things more intense than like war. You know, that's why there's so many movies about it. It's just like, wow, war, combat, death, chaos. And so, yeah, some of these uh, service members, oh my gosh, go through some of the most uh, intense, grueling experiences I think anyone could. And absolutely, some of us uh, really, really deep trauma to deal with. Yep. When you returned, you write this in the book, you were in mourning. What what did you mean by that? Yeah. Um, so for me, again, uh, everyone's got a unique experience. Mine is very, very unique. I, I, I was in a very dangerous place, but I came home without a scratch on my finger. You know what I mean? I was on the roads where I could see the burnt out vehicles that were blown up hours the day before, but I never got blown up. Like I just came home. And yet it's been such an education for me because I was like, it was an emotional war, I call it, right? During those exact 12 months, I mean, I was almost in my mid-30s, so random year in my life during those 12 months, my mom died of breast cancer halfway through the deployment. And my marriage, I won't even go there, but I'll just say it completely, utterly fell apart uh, like a house of cards. <laughs> And so that's what I mean. When I left, I was just really close with my mom, you know, hello, really close with my wife. Like I had two young kids. Life was a certain way <laughs> and moving in a certain direction. Wow. When I came home, it was literally stepping into an entirely new life. Mom was gone. The marriage was gone. It was just, I think that's what I mean. I was in a state of sort of mourning and just reinventing myself, I guess, on every level. At some point in that process of reinvention, you came upon the recognition that while post-traumatic stress and pain is a really common affliction for veterans, 
so is post-traumatic growth. What, what was it that sparked that realization for you? So it didn't happen right away. It didn't happen overnight. It's more like right now I've been home from the war for, you know, gosh, what, 15, 16 years, you know what I mean? So it's after about a decade that it really hit me, right? Like this book just came out, but I've been thinking about, dreaming about, kind of tinkering with the book for, you know, four or five years, you know what I mean? So the nexus for the book was that, was that realization over time. And the way, just for me personally, that I was able to, that that, that just became a truth for me is I've just had a unique opportunity in my new career right after leaving the military. I work with veterans every day, almost every day for 15 years. I also oversee a team of veterans. I get to train them, mentor them, listen to them, coach them when they need to vent. Like I talk and deal with veterans almost every day, like, you know, in, in my professional life. And then I get to we're talking, you know, upwards of a thousand individual people over 15 years I've got to interface with from, you know, E3, just spent a couple of years in the Air Force, whatever, getting out, want to get a little career advising to 09s and three-star, you know, admirals and generals, the whole spectrum. And I just have gotten to listen to them, to listen to them. I don't want to be negative, but what I see a lot in the media and the movies, it just doesn't seem accurate. It's, it's, probably makes for a better movie but in my experience um it's almost like the focus is is on like you said in the beginning seems to be mostly on those of us who are really struggling which hey man we're all gonna support them but i think they're sort of the silent majority that most veterans i would say um are uh, don't come home with this dramatic lifelong trauma, right? That they really, really thrive. And again, I work in the career field and executive coaching and wow, veteran, uh, these veterans are amazing. I mean, inspiring, so versatile because of what they went through and they're able to now apply that as leaders and coaches. It's amazing. In, in the book, you describe this, transition from trauma to growth that, that you've seen in, in so many of these people as a path to peace. And you've identified 12 principles that you believe help cultivate this transition. Some of these are very directly and deliberately taught in the U.S. military. Others seem to be more implicit in the military experience. Um, you got introduced to the principle of hurry up and wait in what was pretty much your first experience with the military on a cold morning at 4 a.m. when you were waiting for your recruiter to pick you up for basic training. And I got to tell you, I instantly recognized that moment because I had the exact same. So I'm, I'm a veteran of the U.S. Navy. I had the exact same experience up at 4 a.m. It's O dark 30. And my recruit, and I'm wondering, like, he didn't show up, right? And I'm wondering, like, if that's built in, right? Like, that's our I first know. lesson on hurry up and wait. Tell him this time, show up at this time. You got to <laughs> wonder. <laughs> now, I, I find this to be a really interesting principle for cultivating inner peace. I'd never thought about it this way until I read your book. But when we are, when we are broken, as many veterans are after returning from combat, the impulse is to fix things as quickly as possible but that doesn't happen as quickly as possible it, it can only happen with patience yeah yep 
I try to be really diplomatic about that too, because everyone's going to have their own journey. There's not a fix all. There's not a, but um, yeah, to me, kind of what we were saying before, a lot of life, just in my experience here at, you know, looking back after 50 years on the planet is so much of life is about perspective and mindset. That's what was so fun about the book. I knew the word look to the warriors and peace were going to be jarring. And that's the whole point I wanted right from the title to go, wait a minute, what? Warriors and peace. Uh, that was kind of the way to get, get your interest, you know, and then I could have just said emotional resilience or, you know, emotional well-being. I just wanted to kind of show people, you may not realize it, but it's almost like, right, if you've been through the military, if you go and start reading like personal development books and going to, and, you know, you're going to notice that sort of the foundation of most of this stuff, you learn that stuff in the military. Maybe no one said it that way. But so I wanted to make it just really relatable. Like I have books on my bookshelf, love them. They're by veterans and they're about right business and leadership and how to use combat tactics. They're awesome. I'm a fan of those books. That is not what I set out to do at all. Right. I wanted to do something super relatable for people. One of the experiences that a lot of uh, military veterans have is um, that, you know, like military life isn't just about enduring things that are time consuming, this hurry up and wait thing we were talking about. It's also about enduring long periods of discomfort and fear and, and as you know, loss. And that requires resilience, which is another practice you write about in your book. And part of that is inherent in a military cliche uh, that you write about, embrace the suck. Um, <laughs> And literally, this means to not just endure something that's difficult, but to lean into it, to savor it, to value it. And yes. I think this might seem a little outlandish to some people. So maybe we can put it into perspective. Um, like what? How do people? How do people even do that? How do they embrace the suck? How do veterans do that? And then how does that translate over into into civilian life? Every time I think about that chapter, it, it, I did it separately from another chapter called Optimism and Determination, but they're kind of related. And it's like, you know, optimism, resilience, it's almost like you know, optimism is a verb in the military. You know, like it's just like you said, it's just expected. It, you know, if you go in the military and you show up basic training, you just go, oh, I just, or you show up to your unit and you just, I just, that was just too difficult yesterday. I'm, I can't go to formation today. I can't, like, it's, it sounds funny for me to say that. Because it's just expected. You and what I think is so cool about it is they're basically saying you have it within you to do this. We're just going to give you opportunities to work on it, right? You can't take and say here you don't have resilience. Here, here you go. Now you're resilient. I think everyone has that within them, just that 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 human spirit and that inner strength, and we lose sight of it. But you go in the military and they're like, oh, you pretty much are expected to, right? not personalized things you're going to have to take you're going to learn how to take constructive feedback from day one and it's like the crawl walk run i just think even like you said even the recruiter like i wonder if it's even planned that way but from the very beginning and it never stops you're given opportunities (laughs) daily weekly hourly opportunities to i would argue work on all these things in my book you know resilience and patience and these are just part of an endless mantras. Mantras, yeah. They're mottos. You know where I'm going here. Um, there are oaths and creeds, cadences, slogans, sayings, songs, 
all of this stuff. Seriously, colors, flags, ribbons. Yep. We're not going to have time to get to every principle today, but there was one more I wanted to take note of because, again, it might at first seem a bit counterintuitive. Um, my first encounter with the concept of mindfulness came when I met the Buddhist peace activist Thich Nhat Hanh. Wow. And, you know, if, if you go to the section of the bookstore with books about mindfulness, you're going to see a bunch of covers with lotus flowers and sunrises yes. and snowflakes, yes. literally snowflakes. And and when I got to this book, this part in your book, I, I was reminded of a convoy that I hitched a ride on shortly after leaving your unit that got stuck for hours on a bomb-laden road north of Baghdad. And and it occurred to me that beyond the fear of being there, there's this sense that I was viscerally aware of what would have otherwise seemed like very inconsequential details, right? Every moving shadow, every piece of trash on the road. And I suppose that might be framed as vigilance, but that's perhaps just a hair from mindfulness, which you've written can be employed in times of danger and peace alike. Couldn't agree more, right? That's true. Vigilance, mindfulness, um, you know, present moment awareness, um, attentiveness. To me, those are all just synonyms. Um, and yeah, like I said, part of writing this book was my own journey over the years and these epiphanies I've had and going, wow, because I'm really that, you know, I really am, am into, um, I've just done a lot of personal work and reading, you know, and mindfulness and, and meditation and, and all those things. And uh, again and again, that's why I wrote the book. I was so surprised how much I actually, sort of a foundation I had in the military, even though no one said it that way, even though no one ever said, but I can even remember basic right, training. There's not a whole lot of people in the military no. who are quoting Tignat Han or, no. you know, the, no. right, right, or the Dalai Lama, but it's all over your book. I mean, like, like the Eastern philosophies really has been influential in the way that you have thought about this and framed this. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes. That that's definitely true. Uh, I knew that would kind of shine through a bit. But, and actually, as I put in the book, more and more, you know, there is a lot more. There's huge research programs in DOD. They are bringing in meditation, mindfulness, the VA. Like, it's definitely more so than when we were in uniform. Um, but, yeah, uh, I, I, I just like to reframe things. I think life is about perspective and mindset, and that was a neat way to do it and go, look, when you imagine a soldier, you know, walking through the woods and everyone, you know, you're able to be quiet. How? Well, how are you able to be so quiet? It's because you're paying attention, right? You're looking. It's just there's so many. To me, it's so clear now. All those times when people are, hey, keep your head on a swivel. Hey, stay alert. Stay alive. Hey, take a mental recon. I want you to sit there. Basic training. Drill sergeant has all laying there. Just relax. Take five deep breaths. Do a mental recon. Where are you at right now? Are you ready for tomorrow's training? I'm thinking, wow, it was all mindfulness training. No one said it that way, but that's what it was. You have done a lot of work to cultivate these practices in your own life. And you said at the top of our chat, you know, you're doing much better than at any time in your life. But what do you personally still need to be working on? I would just say everything in the book, <laughs> all the chapters, all the titles, there's, you know what I mean? There's always room for growth and improvement. And, and so by no means am I, do I want to apply that I've mastered all these. It's just, no one knows you better than, right? No one knows better than me how it used to be to live inside here. <laughs> that voice in my head and that 
critic and that bully. And so I can feel and sense and deeply appreciate how much that's changed for me. And it's, it's just been one of the most transformative journey. It's like Iraq really was a huge shift in my inner world, you know, because I got home and was going through that dark sort of period. And I, I just started to make choices, little choices, daily little choices that became larger life choices uh, to try to, you know, back then it was about just being there for my kids and everything else, but now they're all grown up. And so, yeah, all the above, Matt, you know, um, patience, obviously, you know, with work and things get crazy. Um, getting um, distracted or, or lost or overwhelmed with, you know, like I said, the, the conveyor belt of 60,000 thoughts a day coming at you. That's a big thing for me is uh, you know, I love when I can notice, wow, you know, I was, I was really uh, on autopilot for what I was, where did I go? You know? And then I kind of come back and like, it's a deep joy to me that the interval between those, those periods continues to shorten, if that makes sense. But there's room for growth and improvement in, in, in all this stuff for me. That's Lee Kelly. His new book is Look to the Warriors, 12 Perspectives to Cultivate Inner Peace. And you can find it wherever books are sold online. Lee Kelly, thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by a generous grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.